0: Last night, I got, a, uh, I got a text from Sanghanath. Now, Sanghanath is a, uh, an Indian water member who um, I ordained about nine years ago. Good friend of mine. Again, somebody I worked with in the Winterhorse Warehouse. And um, he is from uh, the Dalit uh, community and he is now uh, the trainer uh, for men, Men's Appeals. Karanar appeals uh, where they raise uh, money for social and Dharma projects in India Um, and Tom has just returned from that kind of appeal and Sanginath wanted to tell me this because they were 34% over target I think they'd done so well and uh, he finished off, uh, he finished off rejo- rejoicing in all the men in the in, in the uh, in the appeal. He finished up by saying, "Let us smash caste together." And uh, so, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. If you talk last, <laughs> on a day like this, you, you sometimes your stomach sinks as a speaker by speaker starts giving chunks of your talk away. <laughs> and uh, Sabuti was doing that. Um, and uh, then I thought in the panel thing, I thought we were going to get into some of the areas, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know what to say, you know, quiet, I'm talking about that. I think... Um, I think maybe before I talk I'll say that the, the first time I really heard about the movement in India and uh, Dr. Mbedkar was when I uh, uh, was being interviewed to go on a, uh, a Karanar appeal. Well they weren't called Karanar appeals then, they were called Aid for India. And um, I was going to spend eight weeks knocking on the doors of uh, Baths. Not Bath, <laughs> but Bath and uh, Bristol, um, asking uh, for large sums of money from people, and um, I was being—I was kind of being interviewed and uh, seeing whether I was kind of suitable for that. It was a brilliant thing to do. And it was the scariest thing I'd ever done, I think, until then. Um, and I still can't quite understand that, because you knock on a door, you're not trying to sell them anything, you're trying to give them an invitation. If they're, they're not interested, that is absolutely fine. So what is so scary? And uh, I think it's just the, um, you have to be yourself, you have to be yourself on the door, you know. And as you hear them coming to the door, you know, the, uh, the, it's, it's quite visceral actually. And uh, you have to stay open and, in a way, vulnerable. Uh, but at the end of the at the end of the eight week op- appeal, I felt like a Superman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt really, really, kind of, I'd done something uh, that was worthwhile. And I had benefited, and I'd learned something about uh, my brothers and sisters in India. You know, so that that was it was very, very kind of uh, worthwhile. So, if you get a chance uh, to go on one of those, uh, go on one of those appeals, or uh, to sign up for Carina then then uh, then do it. So, although we've heard something about what uh, yesterday, it's yesterday isn't it that marks the day. Uh, I'm going to to, um, say something about that because I've written it down (laughs) and it uh, it won't do do us any harm to hear it again. Today we're marking a, a pivotal moment in history, in the history of India certainly, I think, in the history of Buddhism, modern Buddhism, and who knows perhaps in the history of the world. Today we mark that event that happened 61 years ago, uh, yesterday, in Nagpur in central India. When hundreds of thousands of India's poorest and most marginalised uh, communities took together a momentous uh, step, a step into the unknown, that would change their lives forever. And we heard it, we saw a bit of that in Yana Shuri's kind of uh, film um someone someone who was on the appeal uh, with tom an indian uh, mitra uh, his grandfather was there on that particular day and he had walked 8 days uh, to get there he didn't know quite what was happening but dr Ambedkar had told him to come and uh, he wanted to be there um They'd come, all those many people wearing white to answer the call of their tireless champion, Dr. Bimrao Rao Ambedkar. Um, many had travelled very, very far to get there, but I think Dr. Ambedkar had travelled further than anybody. He'd been contemplating that move for many, many a long year. So what were they there for? Most of you know... <laughs> course, by now, they were there to take refuge in the Buddha, uh, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. Um, and if you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Western Buddhist or whether you're an Indian Buddhist, um, we do the same thing. We go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Dr. Ambedkar had tried to get freedom and justice for his community, the so-called untouchables, Uh, within Hinduism again and again and had been uh, met a wall of resistance and a wall of indifference Um, and he had sworn he had sworn that although he had been born a Hindu he would not die one there were those who took refuge in the three jewels on on, on that day who said later that they felt they had been reborn they felt they had been reborn and uh, there's a famous, uh, famous puja by Shantideva where you say those words in the puja. Today my birth has borne fruit. Today I am reborn in the Buddha family. And um, they felt reborn. They felt like they had left the hell of caste. They'd been reborn in the Sangha of the Buddha that recognizes no caste. But only the capability of each and every person to awaken to respond uh, to the Dharma to tread the path towards enlightenment they were reborn as sons and daughters of the Buddha and what was it like you know what was it like returning uh, you know on that day what would they be returning to we're probably familiar with this term untouchable Um, But I want us to spend a few moments, if we can, if we will, um, considering what that was like. Maybe, maybe if you were ever bullied at any time, you know, bullied at school or or socially ostracised in any way, that will give you a little kind of a doorway into what it is like. what it was like to grow up and be considered so low so degraded so unclean that even your touch was shunned even your shadow or even the sound of your voice was polluting because there were untouchables but there were unhearables too who carried something to make a noise so that the caste Hindus would know they were approaching and could get out of the way um... To grow up and see your parents humiliated and degraded in this way, and seeing that there was nothing, seemingly nothing you could do about it. If you rebelled, uh, there were repercussions, and sometimes those repercussions were terrible. To be told that you just had to accept your lot right at the bottom of the caste system in fact outside the caste system your children condemned to this and their children Uh, there's a phrase that uh, in Dante's Inferno hangs above hell and it says abandon hope all who enter herein and uh, um, that reminded me of the situation of the untouchables to abandon hope may well have described the life of those oppressed people Lots of things we take for granted uh, were impossible for them. And I'm really glad Ratna Sager, uh spoke kind of earlier and actually described from the inside kind of out uh, what his life was like kind of growing up. They were expected to do the dirtiest jobs like clearing away human excrement um, for no payment. Um, if you do the dirtiest jobs you are seen as being fit only to do the dirtiest jobs. I remember reading a book, a really fascinating book, called Bloody Foreigners. And uh, quite a st- strong title. And it was about immigration into the UK in the last 1,500 years. So people have been complaining about foreign, uh, bloody foreigners for 1,500 years and more probably. And uh, when, the, uh, when uh, the immigrants come in, very often they have been waves of refugees They have to go into the poorest housing, Uh, they're crammed in there, Uh, they look, they look dirty, they look, uh, you know, they look troublesome, they look, you know, all because of the, the, the situation that they're in and of course over time they do better, they move out another wave. Of kind of refugees uh, comes in. And uh, there was a chapter on the Irish, there was a chapter on the, on the Jews, the Huguenots, there was a chapter on uh, um, African Asians being kicked out by Idi Amin and others, and uh, there was a chapter on the Irish. And one Anglican bishop said, The best thing you can do uh, for the poor Irish is to shoot them. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> the Anglican Church has, has certainly uh, softened uh, since then untouchability has been made uh, illegal uh, but listen to this, this is a uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International report for 2015 uh, which uh, raises serious concerns over caste discrimination And it says, the report finds that caste discrimination persists with adverse effects to human rights on multiple levels. Serious obstacles to access justice, discrimination in education and access to services and caste-based violence, including the rape of Dalit women, are among key themes addressed in the report. And the failure of state authorities to protect the rights of Dalits. State authorities often fail to prevent and at times committed crimes themselves against Indian citizens, including children, women and Dalits. Although the law protects Dalits, this is Amnesty's report now, um, they face violence and significant discrimination in access to services such as health care, education, temple attendance and marriage. Many Dalits were malnourished, most bonded labourers, which is almost a form of kind of uh, slavery actually, were Dalits. Dalits who asserted their rights often were attacked, especially in rural areas. Crimes committed by upper caste Hindus against Dalits often went unpunished, either because the authorities failed to prosecute perpetrators, or because victims did not report crimes Due to fear of retaliation, and of course, if you are if you are reporting crimes within your village, you have to live with the perpetrators. So, if anybody is any in any doubt that uh, crimes are still being committed uh, against uh, former untouchables or Dalits, uh, that uh, that report it makes pretty grim reading. Actually, uh, that was in twenty fifteen. Um, what happens to one's uh, dignity and as a human being one's sense of self-respect surely any society which demeans and approves of such practices is hardly human any religious tradition that sanctions such division hardly deserves the name Sangharakshita, in his Ten Pillars of Buddhism, which discusses the principle of non-violence, the principle of love, says that to demean another person, to debase another person, is to demean yourself. You don't demean them, you demean yourself. Um, If we ever treat another human being as less than human... Um, If ever we try and reduce their humanity, it is our humanity that is reduced, not theirs. The former untouchables, the Dalits, were and are human beings worthy of the same kind of respect and opportunities for betterment um, as everyone else. In these very challenging conditions, growing up in these very challenging conditions, Bimrao Ambedkar grew up, experienced first-hand some of the humiliation. Um, It's said that when he returned to India, probably the most qualified uh, member of his caste ever... Um, he got a job working for the, the local administration I think and uh, uh, caste Hindus would not pass him papers they would stand at the doorway and throw uh, files at him for fear of uh, pollution so in these very challenging conditions uh, Bimrao Ra- Bim and Redkirk grew up fortunately he was encouraged in his education by a scholarship from the local Raja he travelled abroad to extend his education, but he never forgot the humiliations and degraded treatment he had received, and he never forgot his community. He became one of the most educated and accomplished men of his generation. One of his greatest achievements being the writing of Independent India's Constitution. But I think, I think his greatest achievement... Uh, was towards the end of his life. That day in October 1956 when he, and I think only he could have done this, uh, relit the flame of the Buddha Dharma in India. He had a vision of the Dharma which saw it as the foundation and driving force of a social... And political revolution. It was not just about changing one's life. One's own life. One's own personal life. But transforming society. I've been struck by a phrase. That I've seen on the on the news. Um, quite a lot recently. And uh, it's come out of the troubles. In the states. Uh, between the. Uh, the black community and the police. And. um People have been holding these signs up saying, black lives matter. And I've been really kind of struck by that. Um, it's, a, it's a phrase that Buddhism would be very, very much behind. Although we would extend it to all lives uh, matter. Society is changing in India. Uh, society is changing in the world. If you look at the news, very often you think that the world is, changing, is getting worse, actually. It's getting worse and worse. It's a, it's a very, very complex picture, isn't it? What's happening in the world. Some places uh, things are improving, some places things are getting worse. But society is slow to change. And usually change only comes when someone, or some exceptional person, or a group of, a small group of exceptional people, uh, individuals, take a stand... Um, and it's it's a courageous and it's a risky thing to do. A few uh, a few months ago, I went up to Hull. Hull is, as you all will know, the UK city of culture. <laughs> and uh, yes, <laughs> and I, I went up to Hull because uh, I'd mistaken the title and I thought they they the title was that they were the U, uh, European city of culture. And I'd just been to Rome, and I was interested to see how Hull uh, uh, compared, but then I found out it was the UK city. And uh, one of the things I didn't know about Hull, and Hull is a lot nicer than I thought it was going to be, one of the things I didn't know was that Wilberforce uh, was the MP uh, for Hull and lived in Hull, and you can go and visit his house. And he uh, was one of the great movers, one of these exceptional individuals um, that uh, tried to uh, make the, uh, the slave trade illegal, trying to get his uh, uh, giving up uh, slaving. And, um, and it was really moving being in his house and seeing the exhibits in his house. I remember, some of you will remember this too, I'm sure Chandina does because he comes from a kind of lefty background like me. But I remember as a youngster watching a TV program and it was about a demonstration in America, uh, uh, part of the civil rights movement in America. And I don't know whether it was a million or two million people uh, had taken part in this demonstration and they were now assembled uh, by the Lincoln uh, Memorial and uh, Martin Luther King was going to kind of talk to them and um, he he talks to that you you know vast uh, crowd and then at a a particular point in the talk uh, I think it was Mahalia Jackson who's a singer fantastic singer but anyway she says to him tell them about the dream doctor Mm -hmm. And, and then he tells in his talk, he talks about the dream that he has had. And I don't know about you, if you listen to that, I get shivered every time I listen uh, to that that talk by Martin Luther King. Um, there were images as well in the civil rights movement of uh, dogs being unleashed on black demonstrators, the image of water cannon, the, uh, the beatings that took place. Um... The dream, the dream of Martin Luther King, he told us uh, it was a dream of equality, a dream of unity, a dream of mutual dignity and respect and freedom. He dreamt not just for the freedom of his own community, uh, but for the whole spectrum of humanity to be uh, united. Absolutely, kind of fantastic stuff. And he says in the in the talk, doesn't it? That I uh, he talks about climbing the mountain, and he says I may not get there with you. And um, quite uh, quite kind of prescient in a way, because he was assassinated. Um, I don't know how long after that, but sometime after that. Um, but his words, his kind of communication, mark a kind of high point for me. What he did there was to give his people, all people, a dream. And uh, Martin Luther King is a hero of mine and Nelson Mandela is a hero of mine and Dr. Ambedkar is a hero of mine. It's it's interesting to, to hear Sabuti talk about those two figures uh, too, apart from Dr. Ambedkar. And um, and Ratnasangara was talking about in India... India is ruled by quite an extreme Hindu party at the moment and uh, apparently uh, uh, Mr. Modi, the Prime Minister, uh, has been saying wonderful things about Dr. Ambedkar. And um, I kind of, first of all I thought, well isn't that great? And then I thought, hang on a minute, what is happening? You know, one way to uh, depotentialize something is to kind of embrace it. Is to kind of uh, to to make it yours. Uh, quite often in uh, in uh, Hinduism in India, they say, "Well, the Buddha is an avatar of a Hindu god." And uh, Buddha <laughs> Buddhism—that's the end of Buddhism. You can't get you can't get uh, a word in in kind of edgeways there. Um, Doctor Ambedkar too had a dream. Uh, a dream. He seemed to be living out his whole life. He was born an untouchable, a Dalit, but he managed to somehow emerge from his background and he became the the guardian, the champion of the oppressed. He passed on his dream and in India the dream is still alive. Um, Rumi, the Sufi poet, says that men who dream in the day and no doubt women too, actually. Men that dream in the day are dangerous men because their dreams may change the world. Um, sometimes we daydream, don't we? We daydream and uh, it's escapism. But some people dream, dream in the day, and uh, they're dangerous. And very often society knows they're dangerous and wants to contain them. But Dr. Ambedkar um, couldn't be contained, he set himself against millennia of ignorance and prejudice, uh, and he set himself against strong kind of political forces. And writing this talk and thinking about Dr. Ambedkar, thinking about Martin Luther King, how, how do people like Dr. Ambedkar manage to dream such dreams? How do they summon the courage, the energy, the vision to do what seems at times impossible? To do what they may never live uh, to see. Uh, they may never live to see any change from that. They may die uh, seem- and the things seemingly unchanged. How can an individual be a catalyst for such change? I want to go back for a moment to another, to back to America, to an event uh, before that great talk of the dream of Martin Luther King back in 1955 the year I was born uh, to December the 1st to a bus in Montgomery, Alabama um, and you may know when I say a bus in Montgomery, Alabama you may know what I'm going to talk about um, I'm going to talk about uh, Rosa Parks and at that time like many southern states of America uh, there, would, uh, there were segregation laws So uh, cinemas were segregated, post offices were segregated, much like it was in in South Africa under the apartheid laws. Buses were segregated. So you had the white seats at the front, and you had the seats for the colored people, so-called, at the the back. And on some of the buses in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a movable sign. So if more white people got on, the sign was moved back, and if any uh, uh, people of colour were sitting in those seats, they had to get up and move further down. And if more white people got on, they'd, they had to get off. Even if they'd paid, they had to kind of get off so that white people could sit down. And, um, and that was normal. I mean, it's really important to kind of remember that. That was normal. Quite ordinary people, good people, just accepted that. So Rosa Parks got on the bus. She paid her money, and she sat on one of those seats towards the back, uh, behind the anyway the the colour uh, bar. Um, the driver uh, got up, and, and as more uh, white people got on, got up and uh, told the people, the four people, colour, sitting in those seats, that they would have to move. And three of them got up, but one of them didn't get up. Um, Rosa Parks, a 42-year-old woman, uh, refused to vacate her seat, and she made history. (laughs) And it's interesting, she didn't think she was going to make history, that's not why she did it. (laughs) Um, She says uh, later on, People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. But that isn't true. (laughs) I was not tired physically and no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old. Mm -hmm. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. When she refused to give up her seat, a police officer arrested her And she later said, I only knew that as I was being arrested, that it was the very last time that I would ever ride in humiliation of that kind. And many years later, uh, an old woman by this time, she recalled, I did not want to be mistreated. I did not want to be deprived of a seat that I had paid for. It was just time. There was an opportunity for me to take a stand to express the way i felt about being treated in that manner i had not planned to get arrested i had plenty to do without having to end up in jail but when i had to face that decision i didn't hesitate to do so because i felt that we had endured that too long the more we gave in the more we complied with that kind of treatment the more oppressive it became she stood up for herself and her community and it's interesting she doesn't talk about me but she talks about we Um, I felt that we had endured that too long she says and something changed that night there were other people trying to uh, get desegregation sorry, segregation uh, changed uh, Rosa Parks was, wasn't uh, the only one who was doing this kind of thing but somehow she became the kind of figurehead uh, for this kind of resistance uh, movement and it was a bit like uh, the first falling of stones of pebbles before a kind of an avalanche uh, kind of gathers the, the momentum of that change was sparked and in Montgomery, Alabama a young minister, newly arrived became involved in that uh, struggle called Martin Luther King Um, a boycott followed the buses people refused to get on the bus Uh, they walked or they they, they, uh, gave lifts to one another and two years it went on for and in the end the buses were uh, desegregated in the end, a person of colour could sit anywhere they liked. And stories like Rosa Parks are to be heard in India, uh, both in the past and today. And we had an international order convention in Bogaya uh, a few years ago, the, the first one. I went to that. And... Um, one of the activities we did one afternoon was we split into groups of Western order members and Indian order members uh, with a translator and we heard each other's stories. We heard the stories of uh, those people and um, I really, really moved uh, the Western order members. Um, but I think everybody, everybody was kind of uh, moved by it. So untouchability has been outlawed, but violence towards Dalits <coughs> continues and has been increasing in recent years. It has not gone away. The law can help, but ignorance and envy run very deep. Now, I think Peter was asking, uh, what uh, was the, uh, the reaction of other castes to the conversion? Um, one of the things it uh, converting did was it gave uh, people who had got no confidence confidence they began to develop confidence in themselves they they they, they began to improve their lot and people uh, people were resentful of that people wanted to keep them down it's a very very uh, human tendency uh, that I'm afraid in all of us um, you don't mean mi- you don't mind being at the bottom but you want somebody lower than you um, So a recent survey showed that 94% of scheduled castes, another name for, for Dalits, still live in poverty. But change is coming. Dr. Ambedkar pressed for education, seeing education of his people as being the door to freedom. When you have an education, you can meet people at the same level. Uh, you can understand their arguments and you can argue back. You can bring about kind of a change. It gives you a voice. Uh, before that, the uh, Dalai community were dumb. It was as if they were dumb. They, had, they wanted to express something but were unable to do that. I think Dr. Ambedkar, the, 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 the conversion to Buddhism, allowed them to speak. And he he preached equality, uh, liberty, fraternity, and I think uh, I think somebody 's already mentioned this, but he said positively, my social philosophy may be enshrined in three words: liberty, equality, fraternity. but no one let no one, however, say that I borrowed my philosophy from the French Revolution. I have not my philosophy has its roots in religion, not in political science. I have derived them from the teachings of my master. Uh, the Buddha. So, Buddhism, let's look at Buddhism in the West. Buddhism uh, in the West is sometimes seen uh, by many as being something that is rather passive, like even part of the kind of uh, growth and development uh, you know, movement, uh, a passive acceptance of life. I remember travelling back uh, on a, a bus from, uh, no, a train from Leeds, and there were these young guys. And they'd been partying, I think, at the weekend. And I could hear them talking. And uh, they were talking about uh, one of their friends. And they said, uh, it's his karma. It's his karma. He's just going to have to live with his karma. You know, And I, I was tempted to say, actually, you're misusing the word karma. It's, uh, it is for Parker. It's not his karma. Um, individualism is rampant in the West. Uh, it's a cult of one. Um, And Buddhism can, if we're not careful, fit nicely into our individualistic kind of attitudes. We can even talk about my insight. My insight, uh, my meditation, my spiritual life. I remember somebody years ago was working for me on a center team. This is when I was a New Order member. And they said to me, They've changed, but they've said to me, uh, Listen, Art- I don't want to uh, help with classes or with the centre anymore. Um, I just want to concentrate on my going for refuge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just need, I just, the Sangha is actually getting in the way, you know. Yeah. He had quite a lot to, to learn in that. Uh, But he did learn it. That's great. You can learn a technique. You can come to the centre and learn a technique. Say mindfulness. And mindfulness, let me say straight away, is a very, very important tool for change. Or you can learn meditation. And then you can add it to your life as it is. Um, Your life is indistinguishable from the life of anyone else. You are still a consumer. You live a conventional life, not necessarily uh, causing much harm, but actually not doing very much good either. Mm -hmm. Where are other people in all that? Where is the social dimension? Has your growth and development become just a further enhancement of your ego? That is a trap. Um, If you're not careful, you know, kind of Buddhism, your Buddhism can be a trap. Um, Bhante says that before his contact with Dr. Ambedkar he had not seen the relevance to Buddhism of political issues he says it was his contact with Dr. Ambedkar and the movement of conversion he initiated that opened his eyes to the social dimension of the Dharma most Dalits lived in extreme poverty and ignorance Largely deprived of economic opportunity by their caste status, however, it was not merely um, it was not merely to improve their their, their kind of uh, economic situation uh, that a great social change was needed. Banti writes, "I saw, as a result of my connection with them, the need to transform the whole of one's social life." It was not enough just to transform one's individual life. In fact, it was hardly possible, certainly for the majority of people, to transform their individual life without a corresponding transformation of the collective life of society itself. As a result of his contact, Bhante not only saw the need for social change, he saw its possibility. If he had not witnessed for himself what they had achieved, He says he would have been sceptical that religious ideas could transform the lives of large numbers of people in this century. But Bhante's close involvement with them gave him first-hand experience that it was possible. He writes again, I regard what is happening in India as a very hopeful sign indeed, and not just a sign of the revival of Buddhism in a narrow sense, It presents an example of a tremendous positive upheaval brought about in society by almost purely spiritual means. There has been a radical change in the ex Untouchables whole way of life and position in society from top to bottom. And Bante, influenced by this, having his eyes opened by this, Um, it's influenced our movement Um, so when you uh, when he was founding a spiritual community uh, he wanted to uh, have a spiritual community that was committed committed to the ideals of Buddhism, the principles of Buddhism and committed to one another um he didn't want a society he didn't want a, a committee he wanted a spiritual community and uh, a spiritual community that would reach out to the world um and i think if you are you know if you are kind of developing uh your self awareness uh you have a you have a duty part of that part, an, an kind of intrinsic part of becoming more self-aware is to notice other people (laughs) to reach out to other people Um, we're not we're not trying to develop a kind of more, a subtle um, self-centeredness in our practice of Buddhism, we're trying to get rid of the self altogether I think when we look at Kri Ratna we can see the example of Dr. Ambedkar and the new Buddhist Let's call them that, that now. Not Dalits, not ex-untouchables, but new Buddhists. Like ours, they are new Buddhists. Um, how that's influenced our movement. And shown is that living a Dharma life is not just about changing one's own individual life, uh, but that in, that in contributing to the growth of our Sangha, we are helping ourselves as well as others. And I mentioned the, uh, the Karanar appeal earlier, didn't I? And uh, there you are, you know, the beginning of the appeal, you think, well, this is going to help other people. You have no idea how much it is going to help you. Uh, you have no idea how much it is going to kind of uh, bring you closer kind of, to others, both in the appeal um, Well, and in, and in, and in India. We're used to plant metaphors, aren't we, in Buddhism. The Buddha sits on a lotus, he holds up a lotus, and that lotus is being offered to humanity. Um, not to a particular part of humanity, but to the whole of humanity. And a plant, a plant needs both food and water. Uh, but it also needs a positive, healthy environment for which it, it, to, in which it can flourish. Now, I mentioned the, the, the title of the talk is called The Curse of Narcissus. And you might have, you, if you're discerning, you might think he hasn't mentioned Narcissus yet. I wonder where that comes in. Um, it's a bit of a ruse, really, because uh, the title that I, I, I had to begin with, I thought, oh, that doesn't sound very really interesting. That doesn't sound, you know... But the curse of Narcissus, and the whole title of the talk was going to be, Get Over Yourself, Will You? <laughs> because I thought people from Manchester would like that, would get that. Let me, uh, let me remind you of the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus was the beautiful youth, wasn't he? Really disdainful and really kind of cool, you know, towards uh, others. And others really, you know, really swooned when Narcissus was near. And um, he gave him the cold shoulder. I know, Mo- Narcissus must have been felt like. And uh, and uh, he's out hunting one day. Thirsty, he, he uh, steps off his horse, he was on a horse, and he, he goes towards his pool of water to drink. And just before he dips his hand into the water, he sees his most beautiful uh, image. his most beautiful youth staring back at him, and he stares at the beautiful youth with longing. And, the, and actually, the, this beautiful youth seems to, uh, you know, reciprocate. He is staring with longing too, you know. And uh, and every time he, he goes to reach uh, the beautiful youth uh, beyond the water, uh, the image disappears and then slowly settles back and Narcissus is just he can't move he can't think of anything but the beautiful image looking back at him now why have I mentioned this uh, myth <laughs> why have I me- in the end uh, Narcissus uh, pines away and dies in some of the, uh, the myths he drowns in some of the myths he just he just fades away And uh, his sisters, who are the Naiads, uh, who must must be some kind of nymph, I I imagine. Uh, They they don't find his body. They find the narcissi growing by the pool of water, and that's a a posh name, isn't it, for uh, daffodils? And um, I rather like that kind of uh, that like that end of narcissus. That um, it gives me hope. Uh, that uh, that something <laughs> is converted into something uh, more beautiful that can give uh, that can give kind of uh, pleasure. Um, I mention the myth of narcissus because we are said to live in uh, a narcissistic age, narcissistic age, where society um, really encourages us. To become more and more self-absorbed, um, and it affects everything. It affects everything, and uh, I mentioned a moment ago about the danger of Buddhism becoming like that, mm-hmm. where instead of uh, uh, extending your heart out to other people, um, kind of you know through empathy, you 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 actually build the walls of yourself stronger and stronger. Um, but there is hope there is hope the Buddha said that self-love was the key uh, out of the prison it's the prison and it's the key out of the prison and I'm going to finish the talk by just uh, talking a little bit about that if your self-absorption in a way deepens your, your prison deepens Self love can be the key out of the prison because um, by, by genuinely loving ourselves, by feeling for ourselves, uh, if we open our eyes, if we take our, uh, our eyes above the pool and see the people around us, we can see too that they are important for themselves. They're just like us. Um, I'm important to myself Sanghadari is important to his, himself I want to be happy uh, he wants to be happy I do things that cause me pain um, he, he does the same I think I know actually <laughs> he does <laughs> and uh, empathy it's like the, 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 the loving oneself uh, feeling for oneself knowing oneself is also the key beyond the self Uh, towards empathy, towards Maitri, towards that kind of great compassion. If you hate yourself, that is a form of self-absorption too. People who hate themselves are so caught up with themselves. I hate me, I hate me. You know, it's so interested in, in oneself. Um... It's said that uh, self-love also is the first stage, you know, of the, the metabovina, where you, uh, you come to yourself, you wish yourself well, and you don't stop there. So often in society we stop there. We bring together a good friend, don't we? A neutral person, a difficult person. And we try and, uh, we try and make our love, our fellow feeling, you know, our feeling for others, strong and supple and uh, uh, that can contain more and more Um, just tying this back in with the the day one of the things that really moved me about Dr. Ambedkar, the new Buddhist is just their concern for their community their concern for each other Uh, not uh, standing on each other to get free but lifting one another up as they uh, as they get free, and uh, I leave you with an I I'll leave you with an image, and it's an image I think uh, um, that I think reflects what's happening in India kind of uh, very well. Uh, the self help, and in in that way being helped, and uh, it can be a metaphor that will help us too. So, when I worked at Windhorse, we had these weekends away where we had kind of team building and our, our boss uh, Arta said he, he was a rock climber so he took us rock climbing and um, we went out uh, near Mokshapriya's place in, uh, what is that place called? Um, well in Wales Snowdonia. Snowdonia yeah there's a particular part there that is very, very popular with climbers and uh, we were roped up and um, very, very quickly, we saw that if we didn 't look out for other people, we too <laughs> would get hurt. You know our safety depended on uh, keeping other people safe. Uh, their safety depended on on us was a, it was a kind of reciprocal thing and uh, climbed uh, actually with no ropes. Uh, there's a metaphor there too the leader has to go al- go alone he went up and then he put the ropes down and, you know, and I was tied up and I, uh, I climbed up well sort of climbed up and then I was uh, uh, helping the person uh, next to me and he was helping the person below him and really, it was really kind of a great image for um, both uh, both uh, Uh, progressing yourself and how your progression is tied literally in the case of rock climbing literally tied to other people and how their, uh, their needs are so tied up with your own needs and I remember getting to the top, finally getting to the top I couldn't stop laughing when I got to the top, I was so relieved and each person that came up could have, couldn't stop laughing it was like the adrenaline or something was kind of, kind of released and also the feeling of euphoria that we had done it and we'd done it together and for me that is the image of the Sangha uh, you're doing it, you, you need to pay attention yourself You can't be kind of holed up the mountain, you know, like that. You need to to pay attention yourself, you need to be mindful yourself, and you need to make the effort yourself, but you're doing that with others. And that's uh, what they're doing in India, and that's what we need to do here.